Well, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's nice to be back. I am going to tell the whole story because you got just an abbreviated version of it. And it seems to me that it is too important for us not to have it in our heads. Honestly, I think this is the first time I've ever preached on this story, as important as it is. And it may be the first time you've really heard it or uh, heard it preached on. So, there are times in life when we come to important crossroads. And even if there are opportunities, we may feel stressed because to meet them, we have to go out of our comfort zone. Am I able to do this? What's the right thing to do? Is God guiding me here? We may ask. Now, what's also true is this. One day, we may look back on that challenging time and say, that was a defining moment in my life. Or that was a defining moment in our relationship. When Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves early in his presidency and at a dangerous time politically, it became a defining moment of his presidency and a defining moment in this nation's history. And today's reading in Acts talks about a defining moment in what it means to follow Jesus. Peter is the leader of a very young church. And he has to make a series of decisions because of a vision that will end up changing how he and fellow believers understand the purposes of God. Is Jesus also the God of non-Jews, is the question. Up to that point, what most people don't realize is the early church was mainly Jewish. So I want to focus today on a story of how God stretches Peter to see that Jesus is not just for us, but he's also for who we may think of as them. And I'm going to tell it in four acts. Act one, a strange and revolting vision. Joppa is a little town by the Mediterranean Sea about 35 miles from Jerusalem. Peter has been traveling around the area meeting with small groups of fellow believers, staying here with Simon the Tanner, whose home in Joppa is right by the sea. It's noon, and Peter goes up to the roof, the roofs were flat, incidentally, for a little privacy, to pray. He also sends word down that he's very hungry. As he prays, he falls into a trance and receives a very strange vision about food, but definitely not comfort food. His vision repulses him at first, 
But because it's so important, I want to explain it a little bit. As a devout Jew, Peter follows Jewish laws and customs not to touch or eat things that make him unclean. Or in your text, it was the word profane. Now, unclean has nothing to do with germs or dirt. But it's about food or objects or people that make a Jew unacceptable to worship in the temple. We can still find some of these customs today in conservative Jewish homes where they have a practice called kosher meals. But in Peter's time, it's much more important than that. And it's much more serious because these laws were designed to reinforce to Jews that they are set apart as God's chosen people and the Gentiles or the non-Jews aren't. And so their laws say you don't associate with the Gentiles. So anyway, here's the vision. Down from the heavens comes a large sheet held by four corners on which there are many animals, some four-footed, most of which a Jew can never eat. Uh, pork, snails, certain birds, unclean. So, like a good Jew, what is Peter supposed to say when he hears a voice saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But as a good Jew, he responds, Surely not, Lord, for these are unclean. Don't call unclean what God has purified, replies the voice. Whoa. What's that supposed to mean? And it happens three times before the sheet is withdrawn into the heavens and the vision ends. Peter is left wondering, what just happened here? What does this vision mean? Act two, the day before. Let's jump back one day before Peter's vision in a city that's 30 miles up the shore from Joppa called Caesarea. You can tell by the name Caesarea, which comes from Caesar, this is not a Jewish town. Caesarea is the headquarters for Pontius Pilate and the occupying Roman army. So in the eyes of many Jews, it would be way unclean and even enemy territory. But God seems to enjoy messing with our preconceptions. In that unclean city lives Cornelius, a Roman centurion, who is what's called a God-fearer. That's a Jewish term for a Gentile that's attracted to the Jewish faith and who follows many of its practices. And we learn that Cornelius is even respected by the Jews in the area for his generosity to the poor and his earnest prayers. 
And while he is praying, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a vision. Now, when angels show up in the Bible, people's first reaction is usually fear. Encountering the spiritual world is out of your normal experience, kind of gets your attention, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. And so Cornelius, even though he's a Roman soldier who's in charge of a hundred men, stares at the angel in fear. But he's assured by the angel that he has found favor with God, and now he's given some orders to send people to a town of Joppa, 30 miles down the shore, and bring back a Jew named Simon Peter. And like the good soldier he is, Cornelius immediately orders two servants and one of his devout soldiers on a mission to Joppa. Act 3, Crossing the Lines. So far in the account, you have two men, 30 miles apart in distance and worlds apart in background, who have each received a vivid, puzzling vision from God. Neither one fully understands the purpose of the vision, but both men revere God and are people of prayer. This is important because before we can change the world, we often need to be changed. What happens next will change Cornelius and Peter beyond their imagination. We left Peter on the rooftop, pondering his strange vision about unclean food. And as he ponders, the Holy Spirit reveals to him that some men are coming to uh, get him and he should go with them. So when Peter hears someone calling out his name, he runs down to greet them, but we can imagine what he thinks when he sees them, because these men at the gate are not Jews. Even one is a Roman soldier. And he asks them why they are looking for him, and he learns that about there's a God-fearing Roman centurion from Centurion who got a vision from an angel, and now they want Peter to come there to tell him what he has to say. Taking this all in, Peter crosses a line he's never crossed before in his life. He invites unclean Gentiles into his, this Jewish home to eat and stay overnight. He's taken the first step into God's new reality, even though he doesn't realize it fully yet. But no doubt, he must be remembering that voice in the vision. Don't call unclean what God has purified. Well, it doesn't get any easier. The next day, they set out for Caesarea, and when they arrive, Peter now must enter this unclean city and go into the house of a Gentile. He wisely has taken six companions with him along for witnesses, but don't you think he might be wondering if he's doing the right thing? It's clearly on his mind because, and this was not in your reading, 
Notice the first thing that he says upon entering the room and finding that his Cornelius house is filled with friends and family waiting to hear him. Here's the way Luke records it. First thing Peter says to them is, you are well aware, Peter says, that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Act four. God is up to something really big. Why did you send for me? Peter has asked. Cornelius begins telling the story about this vision, and now he says, and we're now here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to say. Well, speaking as a fellow preacher, you don't get opportunities like that every day. Peter tells them about Jesus and about he, how he has learned that God shows no favoritism and accepts anyone who fears him. And then he gets to the part where he's telling everyone that whoever believes in Jesus receives the forgiveness of all their sins in Jesus' name, and all heaven breaks loose. Peter and his companions are absolutely astonished now. Beyond anything that they would have imagined, because the Holy Spirit doesn't even wait for Peter to finish his sermon while he's still speaking, there comes all over this group of Gentiles some of the same signs that the disciples experienced on Pentecost. Not only do they want to hear what Peter has to say, but immediately they receive the gift of the gospel and the belief in Jesus and start praising God and speaking in tongues, signs of the Holy Spirit. And what is Peter to do? What else can he do? He says, can any one of these people be kept from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit the same as we have. Just as we have. This happening in Cornelius' home is a defining moment Peter has just witnessed that Jesus' love is for all people and the gifts of the Holy Spirit are given to Gentiles just as Jews, sometimes they're given to our enemies. Of course, the whole world is not yet fully caught up with this. And sometimes we in the church don't fully grasp it ourselves. But we should remember that what awoke Peter's companions about God's grace to all people and also dawn, has also dawned on many people over the centuries in small ways and large ways alike. This has happened to people seated here. And so I would like to close 
with one example of that that's not from the Bible. Because I've noticed that sometimes when people hear a story like this, they say, well, that only happened in Bible times. That's not true. Anybody here Irish? I guess we must be mainly Norwegians. Of course, Norwegians visited Ireland all of the time, were not terribly welcome when they were Vikings. Irish all over the world celebrate their national pride at St. Patrick's Day, and many of us, non-Irish, will join in the festivities. Most folks, however, are not aware of a great Christian miracle that happened through St. Patrick. And I'm not referring to the myth that he rid Ireland of snakes. I'm referring to a historical fact that's much better than that. Did you know that Patrick was not Irish? And at 16 years of age, he was kidnapped by Irish raiders and spent six years in brutal captivity as a slave in Ireland. After he made a daring escape back to the continent, to his family and his friends, he became a pastor and eventually a bishop. But then a strange thing began to happen. He started having dreams, and in his dreams, Irish voices would call to him, Patrick, we beseech you to come and walk once more among us. Naturally, having lost his youth through the injustice of being a slave, his family and his church advised him not to pay any attention to those dreams. But soon a conviction grew in St. Patrick that it was God calling him to go back to his former oppressors, and he did. And here's the miracle. In the 30 years Patrick spent there, he established the Christian church in Ireland. He probably baptized tens of thousands of converts and ordained hundreds of priests and he united a people in their identity as a people. That's why they call it St. Patrick's Day. This miracle of missionary work, of course, is on God's power. But I want you to think of God's message bearer, who came in love to his former oppressor, even as Peter came in love to a Roman soldier. And this is that power and secret of the Christian faith, that Christ is not only for us, but for them. Do you see how that breaks through our tendency to be tribal? We should never underestimate God's power to do great things through those who take this to heart. Amen.